Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. For three years, Rohingya refugees have been living in squalid camps in Bangladesh, just across the border from their homes in Myanmar, which forced the minority Muslim group out under the threat of deadly force. But despair over being a forgotten people has changed to hope as the U.N.'s top court, the International Court of Justice, has ordered Myanmar to protect the Rohingya and prevent further acts of genocide. To give us further insight into this development, The Crisis Next Door is joined by Dr. Azim Ibrahim, director of the Program on Displacement and Migration at the Center for Global Policy. He's also an adjunct research professor at the Strategic Studies Institute U.S. Army War College and authored the books The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide, and Radical Origins, Why We Are Losing the Battle Against Islamic Extremism. Dr. Ibrahim, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Jason. When we last chatted in March of last year, there didn't seem to be much hope for the Rohingya, but now the UN is stepping in. How big of a deal is this, and how encouraged should the Rohingya be? Well, this is a very big deal, considering that the Rohingya have been described as the most persecuted minority in the world by the United Nations over the last 50 years. And so far, there's been absolutely no hope for them whatsoever. So this is certainly a very positive development, a very positive first step. Um, uh, But we shouldn't necessarily read too much into it. There's a little bit of a misunderstanding as to what this uh, judgment from the International Court of Justice actually entails. It does not entail that uh, Myanmar is, uh, is engaged in genocide. It is simply what they call provisional, a provisional order that the government of Myanmar must do everything it can to prevent the Rohingya who are remaining in Myanmar to prevent them from being victims of genocide. So in a way, the best way to describe it is it's essentially like a caution to the government of, of Myanmar or, or, or a restraining order. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Is there any sort of enforcement mechanism for the ICG to make sure that the government of Myanmar does not conduct genocide against the Rohingya? Well, this is the interesting part because much of this has never actually happened before. You know, this was a case that was brought by the Gambia, a completely independent country that's also a signatory, a member of the ICJ, against the government of Myanmar. Um, and so this isn't, this isn't actually happened before. The ICJ itself does not have any enforcement mechanism it relies on the Security Council at the United Nations to enforce its mandate. So the Security Council has been informed of this judgment by the ICJ. Now it's up to them to ensure that this is actually carried out. Now this will be very interesting to see because historically Myanmar has been protected at the Security Council by vetoes from China and Russia. Uh, China in particular has huge interest in the region. President Xi of China recently visited Myanmar as well, signing all sorts of trade deals and 
um, investment deal. So they have a huge interest in, 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 in Myanmar. So it will be very interesting to see how the Security Council, which is now obligated to carry out the function of the ICJ by mandate, uh, navigates this entire process. Do you think that China and Russia will continue to circumvent that particular uh, mandate from the ICG and that they won't try to enforce this action and order from the ICG against Myanmar? I think it's very difficult to say. I, I, I suspect that they'll probably get involved in some sort of obfuscation and delay mechanism to try to find a way out for Myanmar. But it's very difficult to say because this judgment... As I said, it is unprecedented. All 17 judges unanimously agreed that the Rohingya that are remaining in Myanmar are a threat, a very serious and real threat of genocide from the government of Myanmar. And it has given the government of Myanmar four months to respond to this. And then it must report back to the ICJ every six months, um, uh, informing them of the progress that they have made in protecting this minority group. Um, so the judgment is quite uh, very is very clear in terms of what they actually want Myanmar to do and how they want to to, to report. So how the Security Council can get around that is, uh, you know, as I said, it's uncharted territory. Nobody has actually seen this before. It's estimated that out of the one million Rohingya in Myanmar, seven hundred thousand fled into Bangladesh. At least those are the last numbers I saw. What are those current living conditions like? The, the current living conditions in uh, in Bangladesh or the ones in Myanmar? Uh, I, let's look at both. I, I know that we've seen the big camps yeah. in Bangladesh, but also let's consider yeah. the, the remaining Rohingya in Myanmar. What are the conditions like for both of those groups? Yeah. So the conditions in Bangladesh are very difficult. You know, you're talking about the largest refugee camp in the world. You know, over one million people crammed into a very small area uh, in, in a region that's... Uh, victims of monsoon, so it's all just mud and squalor. And the government of Bangladesh is obviously very keen on trying to make sure that those Rohingya don't actually become permanent fixtures in Bangladesh so that they are returned as quickly as possible. So they have, put, they have tried to make sure that the camp structures never become permanent. So the camp is entirely constructed out of mud and the bamboo. Um, uh, you know, so there's no permanent actual structures. The Rohingya are not allowed to work. They are not, they are not permitted to leave the camp. So, and uh, they don't have access to even, you know, basic facilities. So the conditions are very difficult for them, uh, simply because the government does not want them to become too comfortable. The conditions on the other side of the border in Myanmar are actually relatively unknown. You know, um, the United Nations estimates, and I have seen estimations vary dramatically from 300,000 to 600,000 Rohingya remaining in Myanmar. And the reason we don't know the precise number is because the government of Myanmar does not allow access to this region. The United Nations has passed a number of of resolutions. The UN Human Rights Commission and other bodies have have requested access from the government of Myanmar to this region, and the government refuses to continuously give them access. So we simply don't know what conditions that they're in. But I suspect from the limited access that has been granted by a few um, uh, medical organizations, they say that the conditions are very bad. The government of Myanmar is engaged in starvation sieges. And most recently, just a few days ago, we've seen that they were firing shells into a village, a Rohingya village, in which two women died. 
And this was a region in which there was actually no fighting at all, so there was an unprovoked attack. And this is quite a common occurrence, hence why the International Court of Justice came to this conclusion that uh, these people are at very serious risk of genocide. Living conditions are already horrible, and there is a lot of concern, but are there even bigger fears considering the lack of medical assistance with the coronavirus? I don't know if there are any cases being reported in that area, but when you've got a a viral outbreak like this occurring in China and popping up around the world, it must be a concern that when you've got uh, conditions like those refugee camps, that that's the kind of situation where a virus like that would spread rather quickly. Oh, yes, that, that, that's a real possibility. I simply have no knowledge of uh, you know any virus in the, in the camps at the moment, but that, that is perfect breeding ground in these highly concentrated camps in which you know people don't have any permanent structures uh, you know, for a virus to spread and that kind of nature. So that's obviously of deep concern. Uh, the border between China, you know, the traffic between China and Myanmar is relatively open. Um, uh, so I would imagine there's been lots of people going back and forth. And I do not anticipate the government of Myanmar has m- much facilities and uh, expertise in this kind of thing. You know, it's a, a relatively underdeveloped country in comparison to its many of its neighbours, simply because they had... Uh, a brutal military dictatorship for so long, uh, you know, and uh, they were under sanctions for so long. Uh, so I, I don't anticipate they really have the kind of expertise and the know-how and the infrastructure to deal with any major kind of viral outbreak. So that's obviously of deep concern. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the plight of the Rohingya refugees with Dr. Azim Ibrahim, director of the Program on Displacement and Migration at the Center for Global Policy. Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi has argued against genocide claims, but her arguments were rejected by the International Court of Justice, which ordered her country to abide by the 1948 Genocide Convention. You've recently written a piece in Foreign Policy about Suu Kyi and how she is the paradox at the heart of the Rohingya genocide. She's a very interesting case spending 15 years under house arrest in Myanmar for trying to topple the country's military junta at the time, winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991, and long considered a beacon of human rights around the world. How does someone who suffered political repression, as Suu Kyi did, in turn lead similar repression against a minority group? You know, that's a very good question, Jason, and it's probably one of the most common questions that I get is in terms of how could somebody like Aung San Suu Kyi be engaged and be become an apologist for genocide and become an apologist for the military in such a fashion. But the reality is, is that, you know, I believe Aung San Suu Kyi and her elevation has much more to do with us than it does with actually her. You know, because we in the West, we have a need to have our heroes on a pedestal. We like to have our heroes that are pure and untarnished. And her story is probably one of the best stories that you'll ever come across. It's almost Hollywood-like you know, the daughter of one of the founding generals of Myanmar, placed under house arrest by her father's former colleagues. She's Oxford educated. She's beautiful. She's articulate. She speaks the Queen's English. And now she's a Nobel laureate. And now she's out of prison and she's opening up her country, you know, to democracy and the free market. And this, this is the kind of stuff that we love. You know, we like to have those kinds of heroes that have come to the West and tasted our values tasted our democracy, and then can go back to their countries, 
these own backward countries and try to transform their countries into our countries. And then we forget that many of these people actually come from a very, very stringent ideological background. And she was and always has been a Bomar Buddhist nationalist. You can even see that from some of her early writings. So the mistake is not necessarily upon her. You know, this was an oversight that we constantly make, and we make this mistake repeatedly with almost every leader. If you remember, just to give you an example, Bashar al-Assad, you know, the London-trained ophthalmologist that was being quoted by Tony Blair as the great reformer, and he turned out to be the, one of the greatest mass murderers of our time. Um, uh, same thing with uh, Saif al-Gaddafi, the son of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. He was a PhD from the London School of Economics, and he was, he was also going to be the great democratic voice after the death of his father. Then he threatened genocide upon his own people. And uh, so we make this mistake over and over again. And the reality is, is that she's always been a Burmah Buddhist nationalist. And what I would say about her appearance to the International Court of Justice is that many of friends of Aung San Suu Kyi, many of her supporters believe that, that she's just a victim of the military. She doesn't really have that much power. But when she turned up at the ICJ and literally made excuses for genocide as, as an apologist for the military, then I think that um, uh, claim could have, can now be put to rest. You know, and I think she made a huge tactical error by coming to the ICJ. Um, uh, usually in these situations, Jason, what happens is that the International Court of Justice or even in the International Criminal Court makes a ruling. And whoever's on the receiving end of that ruling the most common strategy that they use, the most common tactic, is to say that we do simply do not recognize the ruling of this court. This court has no legitimacy. This court has no authority to rule on sovereign matters of a state like ours. And then what happened in this situation is that by turning up to the court, Aung San Suu Kyi has legitimized the court. So she simply can't go back and say we don't recognize this ruling when she already said that, you know, when she already turned up in person. So I think it was a miscalculation on her behalf. I think she was trying to cater to the domestic audience. Her popularity has gone up dramatically because of this. These posters and campaigns and uh, rallies all around Myanmar for her. Um, she's gone up high in the in eyes and the esteem of the military. Um, uh, so the situation for her, you know, to, for, for me and I think many other people, was, was very clear that she's always been a a Burmah Buddhist nationalist. She's always believed that Burma, Myanmar is a country for Buddhists only and these minorities just happen to be there. And you have to remember that this is a country that's been at war with every single minority since independence. These are the longest running civil wars in the world and uh, many of these people simply will not rest until they create a pure you know, Burmah Buddhist state. Why do you think her anti-Muslim and Buddhist national views have been largely glossed over by the rest of the global community? I think principally because, like I said, is that her story is, is a fantastic story, and it's a story that we all like to believe of this pro-democracy icon that's going to transform her country. And uh, you know, and she, you know, she's a female. She's beautiful. She's articulate, and she's going to transform her country into a pro-democracy Western country like ours. And even some of her early writings, you know, some of them are just extremely racist. They're blatantly racist, um, uh, but we simply gloss over them because we want to, as in almost every case, we simply want to believe what we want to believe, you know, what, how we like to see the world, and we like to see these champions emerge 
nobody wants to hear the shortcomings of their heroes. You know, we gloss over that on a daily basis with all our heroes. She never said the word Rohingya during her testimony at the ICG. How does that refusal and recognition hurt the Rohingya cause? Well, this, this is the central premise. This is the central argument that the government of Myanmar has against the Rohingya, that these people are all illegal immigrants. The argument they make is that these people are all illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, and they came over from Bangladesh after the Second World War, and they're just uh, illegal interlopers, and they have coined this term Rohingya. And some of them even put a date on it. They say that this term was coined in 1952, and this was created by the, this minority from Bangladesh to give them an identity and to give them connect, a connection to this land. But this simply does not stand up to the historical record. This is something that I have examined in detail with extensive evidence from the Indian National Archives in New Delhi when it was, Burma was a British colony. Documents dating back to 1799 clearly state that the Rohingya are you know, a local population from that region. Um, but this is a central claim. So they, and in Myanmar, you cannot use the term Rohingya. So even when there was a Senate delegation from the United States Senate that was visiting Myanmar, I gave them a briefing before and after their trip. And uh, one of the senators told me that he was warned that if you, if you say the word Rohingya, all your meetings will be cancelled and the trip will be over. And he was warned by his own embassy and and uh, Yangon, but when he when he when he got there, and the Pope as well, you know, the Pope was warned as well that uh, if you say the word Rohingya during his trip, um, uh, there will be a huge backlash against the Catholic minority. So it's no surprise that Aung San Suu Kyi continuously refuses to use the word uh, Rohingya. She refers to them as Muslims in Rakhine um, uh, whenever she has to refer to them, but she never used the word Rohingya which is precisely the central part of the problem, is that they simply do not recognize that these people exist. Let's assume for a moment that the UN Security Council goes along with the mandate from the ICG. It tries to compel Myanmar to bring the Rohingya back home. Do the Rohingya even have homes to come back to? Is there anything left, or are there other people from Myanmar already living in those homes? What would happen? See, this is one of the challenges that the government of Myanmar, the military of Myanmar, has spent the last 50 years trying to get rid of this minority. And uh, they found a window of opportunity to do this in 2018, 2017, 2018. And uh, they managed to get rid of almost the entirety of the population. As soon as the Rohingya were driven over the border, the border was mined to make sure that none of the Rohingya could come back. And that all of their villages were burnt down. And, uh, and the villages were burnt down and bulldozed. And the land has already been repatriated, has been redistributed to local, to local um, uh, Rakhine Buddhists. So it's already been cultivated by others. They've bought in other minority groups and other kind of um, uh, Rakhine uh, families to come and live on the land. So the Rohingya have nothing to actually go back to. And this is a very common tactic of ethnic cleansing, is that you have to change the facts on the ground as swiftly as possible in the eventuality that uh, an agreement is, is reached or there's some sort of um, uh, settlement, is that the facts on the ground have been changed so dramatically that, uh, you know, that you simply cannot go back to what the previous situation was and you have to renegotiate or something. 
So this is what the this is what the military in Myanmar has done. So it's very difficult to see where they'll actually go back to, uh, you know, if any sort of agreement is reached. Azim, you close out your article in Foreign Policy by taking issue with the belief that democracy and liberalism are completely different things and that majority rule could be as cruel and oppressive as any dictatorship as long as it targets the right or the wrong people. You point out the rise in reactionary populism based on tribal identities and culture wars. Is there still hope for liberal democracy or are we in the twilight of a noble experiment? Well, we have to understand that, you know, d- democracy is actually still a relatively new idea. Most democracies in the world, you know, are less than 70 years old. Democracy is, is almost untested, if you say. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, it's going through a very difficult time at the moment. There's a rise of populism around the globe. And we see this not just in Myanmar, but, not, but we see this very clearly in the world's largest democracy at the moment. In India, there's a... Significant laws that are now being passed to ensure that minority groups like the like Muslims and Christians are actually excluded from uh, from the new citizenship laws. So the entire minorities are being excluded. Um, uh, so it's, it's it's very early to say whether democracy itself is uh, you know it's an idea that's going to continue to flourish. It seems that uh, you know it's going through a very difficult time at the moment. It's going through some has some extreme challenges ahead. And uh, yeah, so simply don't know whether liberal democracy is a model uh, that, you know, that the world will settle upon. Certainly one of the biggest tests and challenges to democracy in its rather short history. Azim, thank you so much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks so much for having me again, Jason. We've been joined by Dr. Azim Ibrahim, Director of the Program on Displacement and Migration at the Center for Global Policy and author of the books The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide and Radical Origins, Why We Are Losing the Battle Against Islamic Extremism. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 